disease, or PD, affects nearly 1 million people in the United States and is projected to rise to 1.2 million by 2030. It is the second most common neurodegenerative disease following Alzheimer's disease, and there are nearly 90,000 new cases diagnosed in the U.S. each year. Hello, and welcome to the Comfort Connections podcast. In this episode, Strategies for Implementing Person-Centered Parkinson's Care, we are joined by Melissa Morante. She's co-owner and chief marketing officer of Comfort Care Home Care, a private duty and home care agency serving South Florida. She will provide insight into Parkinson's disease and delve into the latest approaches, best practices, and innovative techniques that empower aging services professionals to help prioritize the unique needs, preferences, and quality of life of those living with Parkinson's. This session is moderated by McKnight's News. Let's listen in. Melissa Morante sits on the board of directors for the Mind Music Movement Foundation, helping bring education and support to those living with neurodegenerative diseases in South Florida. She facilitates eight support groups each month for those living with Parkinson's disease and their family caregivers throughout Palm Beach County and the Treasure Coast. She is also a former board member of the American Parkinson Disease Association South Florida Chapter, support group facilitator, and certified group fitness instructor with a specialty in senior fitness and Parkinson's exercise. Melissa is responsible for training caregivers on both motor and non-motor symptoms, disease progression, and the importance of timing and food when taking Parkinson's medications. She has a unique understanding of the disease and how to work with those living with Parkinson's. So, Melissa, I don't think we can have a better expert on Parkinson's today. You're going to tell us how to better care for these patients. Is that right? It is. Thank you so much, Liza. Um, And thanks for having me this morning. I am very passionate about Parkinson's disease. Uh, Unfortunately, Parkinson's is still a distant second uh, from Alzheimer's disease. And while we have made uh, tremendous progress in education and awareness, there is still a lot to be done. And so if we can just have uh, one person get diagnosed sooner than they otherwise may have, then we're doing uh, everything we're supposed to be doing. Um, so, uh, this morning we will, uh, take a look, we'll define Parkinson's disease, talk a little bit about the progression, what you may see when you're working with somebody, uh, who is living with Parkinson's. We'll talk about some strategies, uh, and how to care, uh, for those folks. And then, uh, really dig into how a person-centered approach can improve the quality of care for those who are living with Parkinson's disease. All right. So typically when I do this presentation, um, we do a little uh, quiz with my audience, but that's not possible today. So I'm going to blow through these pretty quickly. A lot of them you may recognize, um, but these are some famous folks who who lived or are living with Parkinson's disease. So everybody knows who this is. Uh, Muhammad Ali, obviously the face of Parkinson's disease. Michael J. Fox, he has done such tremendous work in raising awareness and money, quite frankly, uh, for research. Neil Diamond, George Bush, Alan Alda. Uh, Some folks may not know who this is. Um, His name is Brian Grant. Uh, He is a former NBA player, used to play for the Miami Heat, uh, diagnosed at age 33. Um, So he is a young onset uh, Parkinson's patient. 
uh, and uh, created his own foundation, the Brian Grant Foundation, uh, offers wonderful exercise programs uh, and information and resources for those living with the disease. Janet Reno, Ozzy Osbourne, and of course, Linda Ronstadt. All right. So what is Parkinson's disease? Parkinson's disease is what we call a movement disorder. It is progressive. Uh, there is no cure. Um, the What happens in Parkinson's disease is there is a, a lack of dopamine in the brain, uh, which uh, dopamine is the hormone that is responsible for movement. And so typically what you'll see, uh, I'm not going to go in order here on this slide, but typically what you see with Parkinson's disease, um, not everybody has tremor, um, but some folks do. So you'll notice a tremor. It's important to know not everybody with Parkinson's has tremor and not everybody with tremor has Parkinson's. So there is something called essential tremor. Some folks experience uh, stiffness and rigidity. Uh, you will see slowness of movement. It's called bradykinesia. You'll also typically see in the early stages, one arm will not swing when the person is walking. Parkinson's typically affects one side in the beginning, and then as the disease progresses, it will affect the other side. Uh, you'll see sort of this tilted trunk. Um, they call it the Parkinson's mask. So it looks like the person is not smiling and there's kind of no emotion. That is simply because the muscles in the face uh, are not able to move the way they used to. And then, of course, the gait. So narrow gait, uh, shuffling, and very short steps. Um, onset <clears throat> is typically between 50 and 60. 10% uh, of those living with Parkinson's disease are young onset patients. I will say in my experience here, uh, I am finding folks that are being diagnosed later, 70s, even early 80s. And I think, quite frankly, um, people are living longer, right? We know that. And so um, I, they just aren't going to the doctor. Um, and those symptoms are happening later in life. The other thing that's important to know with Parkinson's, we talk about symptoms in terms of motor symptoms and non-motor symptoms. The non-motor symptoms are what happen first, and they typically happen 10 to even 20 years before the motor symptoms. And so by the time folks are diagnosed, because it's the motor symptoms that make people question what's going on and you know think, oh, yikes, I might need to go see a neurologist, um, they've already had the disease. So the non-motor symptoms are you know, the things you don't see. So constipation is a huge problem. Um, anxiety, uh, depression, urinary incontinence, uh, orthostatic hypotension, so getting up uh, and feeling dizzy, um, small handwriting, um, your uh, the decrease in the ability to smell, people lose their sense of smell, and all of those things happen first. And it isn't until somebody starts to either fall, somebody notices their gait is off, their balance is off, maybe that arm isn't swinging, they develop a tremor. 
And then they say, hmm, something's up. I need to go see a neurologist. The statistics, uh, they're increasing. Uh, this is a fairly new statistic. 90,000 new diagnoses each year. Um, it was 60,000. You could look at this two ways, in my opinion, right? One is, yikes, now more and more people are being diagnosed with this disease. I actually look at it as it's a positive because this means people are aware. Um, and so they are going to their doctor and they are getting diagnosed, which means now they can do all the things they need to do to live with this disease, manage the symptoms, and quite frankly, live uh, a pretty good quality of life. You can live independently for a very long time with Parkinson's disease if you do uh, the things that you are supposed to do. Parkinson's disease does not kill you. You do not die from Parkinson's. You die from complications of Parkinson's, but Parkinson's disease in and of itself does not kill you. So when we look at Parkinson's disease, we, so Parkinsonism, think of that as ice cream. And then there's different flavors of ice cream. Idiopathic or typical or classic Parkinson's disease is 85% of the Parkinsonisms that are out there. It's the most common. It's typically what you will see, all the things I just described, that describes typical Parkinson's disease. There are other conditions that are caused by a lack of dopamine that look similar to Parkinson's disease, but they're not. Um, we don't have time to go into great detail on those things, uh, on those conditions. Uh, some of them uh, progress much faster than uh, typical Parkinson's disease. I have met people who have been living with Parkinson's disease for 40 years. Um, these other conditions progress typically faster. So multiple system atrophy, corticobasal degeneration, progressive supranuclear palsy. We'll talk uh, briefly about dementia with Lewy bodies uh, in a little while. And then there's some atypical Parkinsonisms. Um, but those are the different flavors uh, of Parkinsonism. So people always want to know, they always say, well, what causes it? Well, I mean, look, the truth is, is if we knew what caused it, then we'd have a cure. So we know it's a lack of dopamine. Um, but we talk about this in terms of risk factors. So what are the things that increase one's risk of developing Parkinson's disease? Unfortunately, men are twice as likely than women to develop Parkinson's. Interestingly enough, the opposite is true of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, women are twice as likely than men to develop Alzheimer's disease. We talk a lot about environmental risk factors. Everybody has seen those commercials on TV, um, Agent Orange, um, folks who have come back from war with the, uh, with the burning uh, fields. Um, we talk about traumatic brain injury. So there's an interesting story about Muhammad Ali. Everybody thinks that he developed Parkinson's disease because of his repeat repeated brain injury. And of course, that didn't help his situation, but his doctor actually did come out and say when he was first on the circuit, you know, he didn't have any money and he was staying in these, you know, flea bag motels and he had a horrible fear of insects. And so they would come into his room and spray insecticides and bug sprays and chemicals. 
And they believe that that is likely the cause initially. And then, of course, the repeated brain injury did not help the situation. There are genetic markers. Uh, There are many genetic markers. It does not mean that you are definitely going to get it. Um, It just means that you can carry the gene um, and that does increase your risk and increase your risk by how much we don't know, right? 50%, 5%, 0.05%, nobody knows. Um, But there is genetic testing that you can do uh, to see if you are a carrier of one of those uh, genetic markers. And then, like I said earlier, age uh, is obviously a risk factor for any chronic illness. Everybody's living longer. And so we're all susceptible to develop um, some chronic illness as we age. So it's not very scientific (laughs) how people, how doctors diagnose Parkinson's disease. There is no blood test. Uh, typically what happens is the motor symptoms start to appear. Somebody says, I probably should go see a neurologist. Really who they should be seeing is a movement disorder specialist. That is a subspecialty of neurology. They have two additional years of training and they really are uh, experts in Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders. Um, And so You go in, you see your movement disorder specialist. They uh, have you do a series of movements, tapping your fingers to your thumb, uh, raising your knee and lowering your hand, um, you know, tapping your foot, getting up, walking down the hall, coming back, you know, turning around, coming back. And then based on how you score on all of those exercises or movements, the doctor then determines whether or not you have Parkinson's disease. It's very subjective. There is no objective test. Um, There is a a brain scan. It's called a DAT scan. Um, It is an imaging technology. They put a small amount of a radioactive drug to see how much dopamine is available in a person's brain. Uh, It's similar to an MRI Um, But essentially what it tells you is if there is uh, less dopamine than there should be. This DAT scan can confirm a diagnosis, but it does not diagnose Parkinson's disease. Um, There actually is a new uh, spinal fluid test um, that looks at uh, clumps of a protein called alpha-synuclein. And people who have uh, sort of abnormal uh, clumps of uh, alpha-synuclein could be at risk of developing uh, Parkinson's disease. Again, not very scientific, unfortunately. The other thing that happens is uh, the movement disorder specialist says, okay, we're going to treat you as if you have Parkinson's disease. They typically prescribe a drug called Cinemet. We're going to get into that in a minute. if that medication does not work, you uh, the person typically has something else. Um, so if the Cinemet works, then that person has typical Parkinson's disease. If not, they probably have one of those other conditions that I mentioned earlier. So I mentioned there's no cure. Um, however, there are uh, things that people do to treat and manage the symptoms. Uh, medications 
People with Parkinson's are typically on many medications, and we're going to get into some of those details uh, in a second. Medications are great. They help manage your symptoms. They do everything with Parkinson's is a trade-off. So that, of course, they come with side effects. Um, Cinemet, like I mentioned, carbidopa, levodopa, it's been the gold standard for 50 plus years. Um, that's still what movement disorder specialists are prescribing. Exercise is the only scientifically proven method to slow the progression of the disease. So again, medications will manage the symptoms. Exercise is the only thing that will slow the progression of the disease. There are two surgical treatment options. Again, trade-offs, right, uh, with both. We'll get into that in a little bit. Surgical treatment options are not for everybody. Um, typically, they're used when people are not having great results with their medication. So let's talk about the medication because the medication is critical uh, to managing the symptoms and how you take your medication is critical. So I mentioned that Parkinson's disease is a result of a lack of dopamine in the brain. There's two types of medications. So one replenishes the dopamine. The other tricks your brain into thinking that it is getting cinnamon. Or, or dopamine. So the most potent medication is levodopa. Um, plain levodopa by itself causes nausea uh, and vomiting. And so what they did many years ago is they combined levodopa with carbidopa to prevent that side effect. Um, if you ask anybody who has Parkinson's disease, you will likely hear them say, I'm on carbidopa, levodopa, or cinnamet. Um, Cinemet has a half-life, and so the timing of taking this medication is critical. So by way of example, let's say that the doctor prescribes the medication and my schedule is to take the medication at 8 a.m., 12 p.m., 4 p.m., and 8 p.m. I take my medication at 8 in the morning, takes about an hour to kick in. Now it's 9. I'm feeling good. I'm up showering, I'm getting dressed, I'm eating breakfast, and I'm getting ready to start my day. Well, now it's 10 o'clock and half the medication is gone, right? And I'm not due for my next dose until 12 o'clock. So the timing of that next dose is critical because my symptoms may start to return between 10 and 12. If I miss that dose at 12 o'clock, it's going to take even longer for me to uh, feel better. And so my symptoms will return and I'm not going to feel as great for the rest of the day. So the timing of when you take your medication is critical. Now, like everything with Parkinson's, there are trade-offs. So when you are on carbidopa, levodopa for many years you start to experience uh, what's called dyskinesias. So if you uh, have seen Michael J. Fox recently, when you see him uh, with those involuntary movements, sort of uh, like his shoulders kind of move forward and back, um, his, people sort of cross and uncross their legs, 
those are dyskinesias. They're involuntary movements. Tremor is more uh, sort of rhythmic. Um, the trade-off of being on carbidobolivodopa for a very long time is dyskinesias. So if people are diagnosed and their symptoms are not so disruptive and they may be uh, on the younger side, Doctors will often prescribe what's called a dopamine agonist. They're not as potent as carbidopa-levodopa. These are the medications that trick your brain into thinking that it is getting dopamine. It kind of mimics, um, it sort of mimics the what the dopamine does. Um, the other medications that are available, so I mentioned, right, between 10 and 12, symptoms may start to to reappear. Well, if it's 11 o'clock and you're ready to go to your exercise class, but your symptoms are starting to return, that's going to prove to be somewhat difficult. So there are new medications uh, called rescue medications, and they're like little boosts of dopamine to kind of get you over the hump to get you to your next dose. They come in two formats. What is called apokin, it looks like an EpiPen and it works exactly the same way. Kind of jab it into your leg. The medication goes right into your bloodstream, takes about 10 minutes, um, and then you are ready to go. And that will get you through to your next dose. The other rescue medication is called Inbresia. Um, That is an inhaled form of levodopa. Um, kind of works like an asthma inhaler. And that too will get you through uh, to that next dose. There is um, another medication. It's called Duopa. Think of this like an insulin pump uh, for diabetes. There's a tube uh, that's placed into the stomach. You wear uh, you wear like a little pouch um, all day. The medication comes in a gel pack and it is a steady stream of carbidobolivodopa. And so it helps manage those on-off periods because you're getting that steady stream of medication. Oftentimes when people uh, use Duopa, they no longer have to swallow pills. You can supplement if you need to. I believe it's twice a day. Um, but oftentimes with that, um, you really don't have to swallow any carbidobolivodopa pills. Um, again, trade-off. Um, I know some folks who have had the Duopa pump and have had to have it removed because of infections uh, with the tube. So, uh, but I've met other people who have had it. One person I met was in the clinical trial for it, still using it, uh, and loves it, swears it's changed his life, and couldn't imagine doing it any other way. So everybody's really uh, quite different. I always say when you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person with Parkinson's. Surgical treatment options. So these... This is brain surgery. Um, deep brain stimulation, very invasive, um, but you can uh, turn it off. You can reprogram. You can move leads if you need to. Um, so the way deep brain stimulation works is a brain surgeon works closely with a movement disorder specialist. They drill two holes in your skull and they place uh, leads in the part of the brain that controls the symptoms that uh, are disruptive to the patient's life. 
it used to be that deep brain stimulation was really used for tremor. But what they found was that depending upon where you put the leads, you could also help other symptoms. So I actually know somebody who had deep brain stimulation. He didn't have any tremor. His biggest problem was uh, stiffness and rigidity, uh, very debilitating stiffness and rigidity. And he had deep brain stimulation and that changed his life. Um, and so, uh, like I said, so you they drill the holes, they, they put the leads in. Uh, about three weeks later, you go back, they put in uh, the battery. It's kind of like a pacemaker. I'm sorry. Um, like a pacemaker. And then the movement disorder specialist programs that um, and can alter according to, you know, kind of switch it up based on how your disease is progressing and if your symptoms are returning. Uh, a lot of people think when you have deep brain stimulation, you can come off your meds. Uh, that is not true. Uh, typically, what happens is your meds are reduced about 50%. Again, everybody's different, um, but there is a reduction in medication. Um, people don't come off of it completely. The other surgical treatment option is what we call MRI-focused ultrasound. Um, much less invasive than deep brain stimulation. Uh, however, uh, this surgical treatment option essentially is burning a stroke in the brain. And so while it is much less invasive, um, it is permanent. Deep brain stimulation, again, you can turn it off, you can move the leads, you can switch up the programming. MRI-focused ultrasound, um, it, you better hope they get it right the first time because it is permanent. So again, everything's a trade-off. Okay. My favorite topic, exercise. I'll talk about this all day long. Um, I said it again. I can't say it enough. Exercise is the only scientifically proven way to slow the progression. Now, there are specific exercise programs that are designed for people with Parkinson's disease. Uh, some of you may have heard of Rocksteady Boxing. Um, it is a boxing class. You are not hitting people. You're hitting bags. Um but those small, um, I forget what they're called, but those small bags, you know, that you pound really fast. And then there's those big, giant, heavy bags that hang. Um, you, There is a cognitive component too, which is really fantastic. So what happens in Rocksteady Boxing is the instructor will call out series of numbers and each number is assigned uh, a movement with your, with your hands. And so you have to remember the pattern and then repeat the pattern with your boxing. It is a wonderful, wonderful program. Um, there's a dance for PD program, which is also great because we know the benefits of music for any neurological condition. Um, but the truth of the matter is any exercise counts, right? We just need people to keep moving. So Tai Chi is great for balance. Yoga is great for flexibility. Swimming is wonderful exercise for people with Parkinson's because it's really, really hard to fall in a pool. And so for people who are um, great fall risks, water exercise is very safe. Um, I love when I ask people, are you exercising? And they tell me, well, I'm going to physical therapy three days a week. 
Physical therapy is not exercise. They're two different things. And the truth is, is you need all of this as part of your therapies and treatment options when you're living with Parkinson's disease. Uh, So for those who don't know, um, physical therapy is designed to restore movement. Um, You have uh, surgery. You um, have taken a fall. Um, You go to physical therapy to restore the movement. Occupational therapy, that is a therapy to help with functional movements. So getting on and off the toilet, getting in and out of the car, putting on your shoes, buttoning your shirt, emptying the dishwasher, that's occupational therapy. Speech therapy, I hear all the time. I heard it the other day I was meeting with somebody. I don't need speech therapy yet because my voice sounds fine. Well, yes, your voice does sound fine, but there's a couple things to remember here. One, it's much easier to maintain what you have than to fix what's declined. And so everything with Parkinson's disease, it's important to remember this, everything with Parkinson's disease gets slower and smaller. And that includes the... I don't know the exact number, but call it 120-ish muscles in your throat. So not only does speech therapy help with pronunciation and volume, but it helps with things like swallowing, uh, drooling, all of which become challenges as the disease progresses. And so starting speech therapy upon diagnosis is a great idea because it will delay some of those swallowing and drooling challenges, and it will also help maintain your uh, pronunciation and your and your volume with speech. My second favorite topic: diet, nutrition. So, I mean, this applies to people with Parkinson's disease, but quite frankly, this applies to anybody, right? Everybody should be. Uh, sort of using the 80-20 rule, in my opinion, right? Making good choices 80% of the time. Uh, But specifically for people with Parkinson's disease, eating the right foods will really help optimize your medications. Um, It'll help keep your bones strong. It'll help with constipation, which is a huge problem. Um, It'll help with weight loss. If you're exercising the way you should be exercising, you need the fuel um, to keep going so that um, so we want to make sure we're fueling our bodies with with good foods. So things that are important to remember, and I don't think any of this will come as a surprise to anybody on this call. Obviously, we want folks to drink enough water and eat foods that are rich in fiber. That will help with uh, all of the constipation. So whole grains, fruits, beans, uh, green leafy vegetables, Um, Again, people with Parkinson's take a lot of medication, so we really want to make sure they're taking those medications with a full glass of water. Um, We really should be limiting sugar. Um, It's very, very inflammatory. And so the goal here is to eat um, more anti-inflammatory foods, foods with antioxidant properties, uh, and less of the processed bad stuff, right? 
Um, alcohol should really be in moderation and with your doctor's approval. Um, again, people with Parkinson's are on a lot of medications. And so drinking alcohol, right, we just want to make sure that that's okay and safe. Um, people with Parkinson's typically have trouble sleeping. Um, they are often fatigued and so they sleep uh, oftentimes during the day, they nap, and so sleeping at night becomes a problem. So limiting caffeine uh, in the afternoon um, is a good thing to remember. Um, a lot of doctors, uh, neurologists and movement disorder specialists that I talk to here in my area talk a lot about the MIND diet. Um, that is a cross between the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, dietary approach for stopping hypertension. Um, so Again, everyone's familiar with the Mediterranean diet, right? So it's um, things like uh, healthy fatty fishes. Um, those things help maintain bone health. Mackerel, salmon, tuna. Um, eggs are a great source of protein. Um, I talked about berries, lots of colors. Um, limited dairy only because dairy is also very inflammatory. And so we really want to make sure um, that we're limiting those inflammatory foods. Um, there used to be a lot of talk about watching your protein intake at the same time you take your medication. I've heard recently that that isn't really as big of a concern anymore. Um, doctors used to say, um, the uh, eating protein would impact the absorption of the medication, the Cinemet. I was with a movement disorder specialist a couple weeks ago, and he said, eh, it's not really as big of a concern. It's more important that you're taking your medication on time uh, and making sure that if you are getting nauseous when you take your medication, that you're taking it with some food. Um, so timing is uh, more critical uh, than what you're taking it with. Um if somebody has tremor, eating can present some challenges down the road. Um, there are things out there like weighted utensils. Um, you know, you can wear a bracelet that helps uh, weigh your, your wrist down and your hand down to help with tremor. Um, you know, as uh, swallowing becomes a challenge, uh, it may be that we need to cut food into teeny tiny pieces. Uh, it may be that at some point in end stage, foods will need to be pureed. Liquids may need to be thickened. Um, straws, not a great idea for people with Parkinson's disease. Liquid comes up too fast. They can choke. Um, so believe it or not, uh, we don't uh, typically recommend using a straw for people with Parkinson's disease. So activities of daily living, you know, look, moving around becomes harder as the disease progresses. Um, exercise will help with that, of course. Um, sometimes people with Parkinson's disease will experience what we call freezing. And it is exactly what you think it is. Their feet are quite literally frozen to the floor and they can't move. It typically happens. Uh, when folks walk through a doorway, although it can happen other times, um, it's quite easy to get somebody to unfreeze. So one of the things you can do is snap your fingers kind of like a metronome and say, okay, Mary, on the count of three, we're going to walk. And you count three and they walk. 
that will help. Um, the other thing you can do is obviously you want to stand near them, especially if they're a fall risk. But if they shift their weight ever so slightly from one foot to the other, that can also help unfreeze. And then the other thing you can do is throw something on the floor, a pen or a book or something and say, um, I need you to step over this pen or I need you to step over this book and that will help unfreeze. In terms of home safety, again, um, important for people living with Parkinson's disease, but the truth is important for any senior that's, you know, um, still living independently. Um, be mindful of all of the fall risks that we're already considering. So clutter, um, that's bad news. We want to make sure there's no clutter. Um, we want to make sure that there's enough room to walk, you know, through and around furniture. Make sure there's enough lighting. Uh, people should be wearing rubber-soled shoes in their house. Here in Florida, you know, there's ceramic tile everywhere. So walking on ceramic tile with socks is just a recipe for disaster. Um, throw rugs, yes, they're beautiful, but they're dangerous. So either tack them down or better yet, get rid of them. Nobody, uh, nobody with Parkinson's disease should ever be on a step stool. So uh, things you use frequently in the kitchen, you may need to reorganize your kitchen. You may need to move those things down lower so you can reach them. Um, steps, really, really, really need to be careful with steps. Um, certainly make sure there's railings. Um, they have, you know, they still have those chairs that go up the railings. Um, in terms of the bathroom, obviously grab bars, obviously no slip strips. Um, this one might not be uh, so intuitive, but um, imagine a person with Parkinson's disease who is experiencing orthostatic hypotension and they're using a bar of soap and that bar of soap drops in the shower. Well, now they're going to bend down to pick up that slippery bar of soap. They may get dizzy when they stand up, so they may fall in the shower, hit their head, and then who knows what happens after that. Buy soap in a pump. Keep it on the shelf. And then just this way, nothing falls. Nobody has to bend down and pick it up. A shower chair is a great idea uh, when folks are no longer able to stand in the shower by themselves. Um, we've pretty much exhausted mealtime. You know, again, healthy meals, soft, small foods as the disease progresses. Um, timing uh, of the medication is critical. If folks are getting nauseous, make sure they take it with food. Um, getting dressed will become a challenge as the disease progresses. Uh, obviously folks should be sitting down when they put their pants on. Um, non-skid socks are a great idea instead of slippers. Um, allow plenty of time. So if you're caring for somebody with Parkinson's disease, the morning time is the hardest time because typically they've gone all night without their medications. And so it really does take uh, quite a bit of time to get going. So the, the recommendation is take your medications, let those medications kick in, and then get up and get dressed and start your day. Um, but, you know, slip on shoes without ties, that's helpful. They make things now that you can put in your socks to help you pull up your socks. You know, shirts that don't have buttons or zippers as those things become more challenging are a great option. So it's just being mindful of how to uh, help folks still remain independent 
um, but putting some, you know, things in place that just make those things a little bit easier. All right. So all the things I just described are activities of daily living. And those physical needs are pretty easy to identify, right? We know if somebody with Parkinson's disease is uh, if their gait and balance is off. So they're definitely going to need standby assistance and they're definitely going to need assistance getting in and out of the shower. Physical needs are very easy to identify when we're caring for somebody. Emotional needs, not so much, right? And so good caregiving really takes into account both of those things. I'm going to skip this slide. So when we talk about the emotional needs, right, we really want to dig in to who this person is, right? And this goes beyond things like, what did you do for your job? How many kids did you have? Where did you live? Right? It really digs into what made you so proud, right? What are your values? What are your traditions? Did you attend temple and church uh, on a regular basis? Were you in the military? Um, what are your greatest successes? Uh, we really, really want to, uh, we call it here, we call it social history or life story. Um, and then take all of those things, right? And you can get that information in lots of ways. I mean, you can certainly uh, interview the person living with the disease. Look, only 50% of people with Parkinson's disease will develop Parkinson's uh, disease dementia. And so their faculties are there. So they'll remember, ask them questions, really dig in, uh, have them show you old pictures, have them share memorabilia, ask family members, ask neighbors, ask friends. I'll give you an example, uh, my own personal example. When I was a kid, uh, every Sunday... Uh, my father would make French toast with my sister and I and my mom. Um, and we would play music. Uh, I'm dating myself on eight tracks. Um, and it was Harry Chapin, Billy Joel, Jim Croce. Um, and so fast forward, right? If I'm living with Parkinson's disease and I'm thinking back through the memories that uh, are significant to me, if I smell French toast and I hear Harry Chapin, I am instantly eight years old sitting at my kitchen table and I am as happy as can be. And so it's things like that that really can impact and improve the quality of care. Another thing, right, scents are so uh, important and uh, triggering, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, if I smell Shalimar perfume, my mom wore Shalimar perfume every time my parents used to go out. Um, when I smell that, I'm instantly transported right back to uh, to being a kid. So those are the things that you really want to dig into and understand so that you can create what we call meaningful activities. Uh, so we talk about it here. Activities of daily living help people live right? Meaningful activities give people a life worth living, right? So, so we take 
that life story or that social history and all of the things that made somebody who they are. And we couple that with where they are in the progression of the disease. And that's how we develop a plan of care. Now, the X's on this chart are on purpose. I did not forget to put them in. And that is because the breakdown of these things is different for everybody. So somebody who is earlier on in the progression of the disease may not need as much help with activities of daily living, right? They may just need more meaningful activities. Look, safety and security is always the top priority. Um, But the other things are different, and it really depends on the person and where they are in the disease. And so um, when we talk about that person-centered plan of care, um, I mentioned it earlier, right? The smell of French toast, the smell of the perfume, the hearing of the music, right? Those are the things that um, really can help connect to someone's life story. Okay. So you have a toolkit, right? You need some tools to make this happen. Um, You want to make sure those tools help you address any challenges that are presented. You're going to have to make adjustments. Every day is different, right? We want to minimize the risks. And of course, we want to maximize the opportunities. So again, we're running out of time, but and so I don't have time to go into all of these things. Um, But again, you know, look, check yourself right? We call it give yourself a checkup from the neck up, right? So your reaction to them is the only thing you can control, right? Listen to them, right? Show respect. You need to be where they are. Positive emotions are really important. Providing meaningful activities, right? That's important. We want to, this isn't just about um, making sure that they are Uh, fed and bathed and dressed, right? We need to make sure when you do all of those things, everything else becomes so much better. And so we want to make sure that they're doing those things and that they're safe while that's happening. But then we really, really want to create these meaningful activities and give them a life worth living. Um, And so I encourage everybody to really take a look at there are some wonderful resources out there obviously i'm I'm happy to be a resource anybody can reach out to me at any time and i would be happy to answer any questions um but i highly recommend the parkinson's foundation the american parkinson's disease association the michael j fox uh foundation uh the national council on aging really use credible resources Um, I joke around a little bit, you know, I have Parkinson's.com probably isn't the best resource. Um, You really want to make sure you're going to places uh, where the information is credible. Mayo Clinic is another great one. Um, The Brian Grant Foundation, like I mentioned. So so those are the resources that I highly recommend. Um, And I think with that, uh, I'm going to pause and uh, open it up for any questions. Thank you so much, Melissa. Wow, you provided so much good information and so much, so many great little tidbits. So yes, it is the time for the Q&A. And if you have any questions for Melissa, please type out your questions now. We already have a few in the queue. 
Melissa, with one one question. Do they see behavioral changes in patients who have had MRI-focused ultrasound treatment? So behavioral changes in terms of... So it really... MRI-focused ultrasound addresses uh, the mo uh, motor symptoms. Uh, so typically, it helps with tremor. So in terms of behavior changes... I haven't heard of that. Um, it really just uh, helps minimize the tremor. Okay. And you had mentioned yoga. What is What does yoga do for you? What's it good for? It's great for flexibility. Okay. <laughs> um, and then another question. Have you looked into MCT oil? Uh, so I'm not a doctor. Uh, and so any supplements uh, that anybody wishes to take with their Cinemet should absolutely be uh, asked uh, to their doctor to make sure um, that it is safe and that the doctor is okay with that. Um, I do know that MCT oil has been found to be helpful uh, for brain health, but again, Beyond that, I it's re I'm really not qualified to answer that question. If somebody with Parkinson's should be on it, mm -hmm. another question. I have heard about patients having flooring that looks like stairs to trick their brain into walking better. Have you had any experience with that? Hmm, I have not. Um, what I can tell you is um, movements that um, enforce. Big, giant steps are incredibly effective. And so remember, everything gets slower and smaller. So people with Parkinson's disease, they think when they are taking, you and I would be taking giant steps. Like when we were kids and we would say like, mother, may I take three giant steps? That is what we want people with Parkinson's disease to do. They think they're taking huge giant steps, but in actuality, they are walking, they're taking normal size steps because their normal size steps are much smaller. And so the emphasis is really on big giant movements, both walking, arm swinging, uh, all of those things are critical. Mm -hmm. Going back to exercise, um, and this is kind of my question, um, and then I'll provided the question from the audience, like in what ways is exercise, how does it make things better? Why, 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 why does it help? And then my question from um, a member of the audience, where would I find studies showing that exercise slows the progression of Parkinson's? So you can go to any credible, uh, any credible source and search exercise and Parkinson's disease. Every movement disorder specialist will tell you Exercise slows the progression. Um, go to the Rocksteady Boxing website, and it will explain to you why that program is so effective. Uh, but essentially, uh, getting your heart rate up, don't have to be out of breath, um, but getting your heart rate up, continuing to move, right? It's all related to dopamine, which is what's missing. And so the exercise can help stimulate some of that a dopamine reaction, and that is what slows the progression of the disease. Fascinating. Um, yeah, and just another related question about, um, oh, I missed it. It had, 
it had some they had said said something about what exercises specifically which you did go over in the presentation but maybe just run through it again real fast yeah absolutely so look any exercise counts um again there are specific exercise programs designed for people with parkinson's so that's rock steady boxing that's dance for pd um tai chi like i said is great for balance yoga is great for flexibility water exercise is safe we really just want people to move. So even walking, stationary biking, um, chair exercises, sit to stand, any movement counts. Gardening, housework, right? Running a back, that counts. Um, we just want people to move. Here's another question, a little bit different topic. Ideas for Parkinson's support group topic. Um, so that's a great question uh, for me. So I facilitate uh, eight uh, Parkinson's support groups a month and people do ask all the time, you know, what do we talk about? And my answer is we talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, I honestly never go in with an agenda, um, but I can tell you the topics that we address. So uh, we talk a lot about uh, medications. We talk a lot about sleep challenges. We talk a lot about who has found um, a new movement disorder specialist because the one that they were using is no longer taking their insurance or they're no longer happy with them. Sometimes I bring in guest speakers to talk about uh, new medications or occupational therapy. Uh, we talk about medical marijuana. But then, you know, last week we talked about traveling with Parkinson's disease. And there's a bunch of folks uh, in one of my groups who are frequent travelers. And so they were able to share some helpful tips on navigating the airport, navigating a cruise ship, um, you know, those kinds of things. It, it really is. I mean, one time we talked about, uh, there was a gentleman on my virtual support group uh, and his grandchildren came to visit and he was really struggling because um, he decided that one of his grandchildren was just a brat and really too difficult to be around. And so he just needed the support of his friends, right, from his support group. We didn't even talk about Parkinson's disease for the first 40 minutes. He really just needed some help getting through uh, feeling this way about his grandchildren. So any topic is on the table for support groups. Yeah. Can you explain what home health can do specifically for Parkinson's patients? Yeah. So, okay. So home health um, is, that's skilled. So PTOT speech. Uh, home care, which is what I do, that's uh, non-medical private duty home care. So we assist with um, activities of daily living. Um, we also uh, can help with those meaningful activities. So when a caregiver goes into a home, obviously, like I said, safety and security, number one priority, um, bathing, dressing, feeding, uh, med reminders. But then also, you know, I had a client who had Parkinson's disease uh, and he was a musician, not by trade, but as a hobby. And so one of the things that we used to do was take him to, he joined uh, a chorus through an organization we used to take him to his chorus practice. Uh, we had the caregiver make a playlist on their phone and play his favorite music from back in the day. Um, another example, 
Uh, so my grandfather had Parkinson's disease. We did not know back then uh, everything we know now. I, I wish we did. Life would have been quite different for him and for my grandmother. Um, but he was a cartographer in the army. And so one of the things, had we known, right, we could have had a caregiver take him to the library and look at old maps uh, from where he was stationed, right? That's a meaningful activity. And that's those are the things caregivers can do, it, family caregivers or professional caregivers, truthfully. A very special thank you to Melissa Morante of Comfort Care. What an awesome presentation. Please learn more about comfortcare.com. Thank you all so much for tuning into this webinar. Uh, you've been a big part of the success today. Thank you for your terrific questions. This is Liza Berger from McKnight's. Thank you, Melissa, for sharing your insights and providing strategies for implementing person-centered Parkinson's care. Listeners, visit comfortconnections.com to download complimentary resources, view show notes, and access our episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app. Thank you for listening and helping older adults live the best life possible.